what a great blessing it is to be able to come together to church. And what a great blessing it is to pray. Uh, it is such an amazing privilege to become before God's throne of grace. And can I say, later on in the book of Ephesians, one of the signs of being filled with God's spirit is thankfulness. Gratefulness and thankfulness is not natural. It's supernatural. Um, and to see God's hand of blessing, um, it really does take a work of God's spirit by faith. This morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 and I'm going to be reading from verse 1 um, through to verse 13. I'm really excited to be looking at this part of God's word um, just because I think it's so rich and, uh, and I think there are just so many wonderful things to see in it. Uh, especially, can I say, the passage that Ian read out to us earlier from Judges chapter 7. So keep that in mind as well as we read this. So Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has, been, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets." This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, would you please join me again in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, it is a great delight that we can come into your presence in corporate worship and worship and praise you, the true and living God, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, and through faith in your Son, redeems people from every nation under heaven. Lord, as we come and as we sit at your feet now, we ask that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit.
that you would open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. So, Lord, please take the words of my lips, as weak as they are and as unworthy as I am, make me a spokesman, Lord, for you, an ambassador for you, that we might know you better. Lord, and that we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a strange and I think profound paradox, but God's strength is displayed in us the most when we are at our weakest. God's strength is displayed in us the most when we are at our weakest. And it's not like God is making the best out of a bad situation, but the Bible reveals that God plans for that specifically to take place that way. He leads us into situations. He orchestrates our circumstances even so that we are in situations where we are beyond our ability to, to control or sometimes even endure so that we have to completely rely on him so that we earnestly seek him in prayer and rely on him for wisdom and strength. Brothers and sisters, do you ever feel that way? That you're completely at the end of yourself? That there is no more resource in you? You might be going through something similar like that right now, where you come to the end of yourself and you think to yourself, maybe even this morning, how can I even possibly go on? If I'm going to get through this, then it really is going to have to be the supernatural intervention of God. The further I go on as a Christian, the more and more I realise a profound and, can I say, infinitely comforting truth. And that is, Jesus plans for that kind of situation to occur. Obviously not because Jesus is mean or spiteful, but because it's in and through our weakness that Christ's strength is displayed. And that's the paradox. You see, we all want more of God's strength and more of Christ's power in our lives, don't we? But the way that we receive that is by God making us more and more weak. Back in verse 19 of chapter 1, Paul had prayed this profound prayer for the Ephesians. And one of the things he asked God for them was that they might know his incomparably great power. The power, he says, which is like the working of his mighty strength. The same supernatural energy which raised Jesus from the dead. And I think we automatically assume that that will immediately mean some kind of victory or success of some kind, don't we? But while that might ultimately be so, 
we fail to understand that often what it will mean is suffering and weakness and for some possibly even death. Why do I say that? Because if you read through the Bible, then you'll find that this is how the Lord God Almighty consistently plans things to happen. Just take the incident that we read about a little earlier from Judges chapter 7. Uh, If you've still got your Bibles there and open, have a look at the chapter just before that in Judges chapter 6. Because in the chapter just before chapter 7, chapter 6, Gideon had famously laid out a fleece. And can I say, not so much to discern God's will, what does God want him to do? That wasn't really what Gideon was doing. What Gideon was instead doing was faithless. He was putting God to the test to see if what God said he was going to do, he could actually do. To prove that what he said was going to occur, this remarkable victory, was actually going to take place. Gideon already knew what God's will was. Gideon was trying to prove whether God could actually fulfill his word. You see, it's not so much an example of faith as I think a lot of people often think. It's a sad indictment of Gideon's lack of trust in the Lord. He didn't believe what God said he was going to do. You see, God had already told him what he was going to do. And what was his response? Well, he immediately questions why God, or the Lord, hasn't acted miraculously like he has in the past. He seems oblivious as to how the Lord has already saved the people of Israel through the actions of the prophetess Deborah. Back in verse 14 of chapter 6, Gideon had explicitly been told by the Lord this, verse 14. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? This should have been enough for Gideon because the Lord himself had given the command. In fact, Gideon, did you know this? Gideon is the only deliverer in the book of Judges whom the angel of the Lord appears to. Everyone else receives instructions through one of the prophets. But while no character in the book of Judges receives more divine assurance than Gideon, no one also displays more doubt. For Gideon responds to the Lord's appearing by saying this, But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. To which the Lord answers, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And this all leads to this extended and can I just say almost comical scenario of God of Gideon putting God's promise to the test. Of Gideon getting God to prove that he's actually more powerful than the pagan idol Baal who was often portrayed as the god of storms, or you might find this a little bit humorous, 
the God of the dew, the God of moisture. That's why Gideon proposes the kind of fleece test that he does. He's trying to see if God is stronger than Baal. What Gideon doesn't realise, though, is not only is the Lord's power supreme, but Gideon himself is not weak enough. Because as chapter 7 unfolds, God strips away even what little strength he has. And he does it deliberately. For instance, the Lord says to Gideon in verse 2, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. (laughs) Too many? In order that Israel may not boast against against uh, her that her own strength has saved her. And so, first of all, God tells Gideon in verse 3 that he is, allowed, he is allowed, he's allowed to say to any of his men to go home if they're afraid. And immediately, immediately, two-thirds of them depart. And so his army is depleted from 32,000 down to 10 because two-thirds of them are scaredy cats and don't want to go into battle. But then the Lord says to Gideon in verse 4, yeah, no, there's still too many men. Too many? (laughs) Really? Uh, Back at the start of chapter 6, we're told that the Midianites were so numerous that they were like swarms of locusts and that it was impossible to count all of their men and their camels. And, And here's the Lord saying, yeah, still too many. In fact, verse 10 of chapter 8 says that their number was something like 130,000. And that's just the men, not counting camels. So how could God possibly say to Gideon, yeah, you've got too many? But then the Lord tells Gideon to reduce their number even further by separating those who drink water in a certain way. Strangely, those who lap water like dogs are chosen, which is, I think, a pretty derogatory way of describing these men, I think, as being a bit precious. They didn't want to get their clothes dirty by getting down on their knees to drink. But the end result is clear. Gideon's army is reduced to a paltry 300. And it's not like these blokes were, you know, the specially chosen for their courage, like, you know, the Spartan 300. No, these were the weakest of the weak. They were the least likely to win a battle from the weakest tribe in all of Israel. And yet, as we go on to see, they participate in this unbelievable victory. They win a battle which, humanly speaking, they should never have won. And what do they do? They blow a trumpet and they break a jar. We should laugh. How does that work? It's through this unimpressive means, though, that the Lord himself achieves this incredible victory. The Bible says in verse 22, this. Have a look at this. Verse 22 Just so we're in no doubt, 
The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. That's the Lord's hand. And as a result, Gideon's bunch of 300 lapdogs mop up what's left. Now, you might be wondering why I've spent so much time on this as an introduction this morning. Don't worry, the rest of the sermon's a lot quicker. And even more importantly, what it's got to do with the passage from Ephesians chapter 3. And can I just say to you, much in every way, because this is precisely the kind of situation that the Apostle Paul is in. It isn't as obvious when you first read it, but verses 2 all the way through to verse 12 are actually something of an aside. A very important and theologically rich aside, to be sure, but an aside or digression nonetheless. The main point Paul has in mind, though, is what he says in verse 1 and verse 13. That's the point. You see, Paul starts in verse 1 by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he says in verse 13, Do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. Now stop. Did you just catch that? I know we hear this a lot, but things have not been going well for Paul. I mean, he suffered all kinds of hardships, setbacks and trials. And even when he first brought the gospel to Ephesus, there was a riot as a result. Ever since he left the city, humanly speaking, things have gone from bad to worse. For it wouldn't be long before Paul was arrested, endured an unjust trial and ultimately be put to death. And it makes you ask this very important question. If Christ has conquered, then why is Paul being defeated? If Jesus really is Lord and God over all creation, then why would Jesus plan for his servant to suffer like this? Well, it's very similar to what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? Who was despised and rejected by men who was unfairly arrested, beaten and finally executed, the servant Paul has become exactly like his Lord and Saviour. Now, can I say, friends, this is a profound truth which we have to keep on coming back to over and over and over again. For the gospel is not just the content of our message, but it's the shape of what its messengers will ultimately become. You should see in a servant of the gospel, the gospel made manifest. For we who proclaim the gospel of a suffering servant must become exactly like him in how we function and how we live. Now, with that extended word of introduction, Paul has two distinct points to make. Don't worry, everything's going to go a lot quicker from here. But in this long digression between verses 2 and 12, there are two points. The first is in verses 2 to 7, and it's that the mystery of Christ has been revealed. And the second is in verses 8 to 12, and that's that the mystery of Christ is being proclaimed. While these are glorious truths, though, they are something of a digression in Paul's thought. 
Because the point that Paul is trying to get at is reached in verse 13, and it's simply this, not to be discouraged by them. Don't be discouraged that he is suffering because, as we'll see a little later, Paul's suffering is actually for their glory. That truth alone is really incredible to get our heads around. But before we get to that, though, let's consider the content of Paul's digression. First, the mystery is that of Christ has been revealed. Now, if I was to ask you all a question this morning, what is the mystery of Christ? I wonder what you would say. I think most of us would say something like this. The mystery of Christ is that we as sinners can be reconciled to a God who is holy and the mystery is achieved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That when we put our trust in him and that we are reconciled to God and we receive the free gift of eternal life. Does that sound about right? I think I'd say something like that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong at all with anything I've just said. It's just not what the Apostle Paul says the mystery of Christ is. We looked at this a few weeks ago when we considered the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. The mystery of the cross is not just vertical. It's horizontal. It's not just that we as individual sinners have been reconciled vertically to God. That's absolutely right and infinitely good. And we want to say a hearty amen. But just take a look again at what Paul says in verse 6. For the reconciliation we receive through Christ is not only vertical, it's horizontal. Because union with Christ reunites us with people from every nation under heaven. Paul says in verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see? Through his death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus has achieved both a vertical as well as a horizontal victory. Yes, you come into the car through the door, but the mystery is, Everybody gets to come into the car through the door, not just Israel. That's mind-blowing. That's universal. You could say that's cosmic. Because Jesus has overturned the effects of the fall. Let's stop and think about it. It's really quite incredible that Paul would be persecuted for proclaiming such a gospel of reconciliation. Why, why, would you, why would you want to see this as some form of hate speech? Why would Paul go around killing Christians for proclaiming reconciliation with God and reconciliation with one another? I mean, isn't that a good thing? The Old Testament prophets foretold a day when the mountain of the Lord would be raised up and all the nations of the earth would stream towards it. That's what you and I have done, friends, this morning. We have come to the mountain of the Lord from every nation under heaven, not just here, not just throughout Hobart, but all around the world, people have been worshipping Christ. The little rock that became the growing mountain. 
The prophets talked about how people would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, while that's going to be ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, we see actually a foretaste of that here now, whenever the gospel of Christ is preached. For whenever his gospel is preached and his name is exalted, people are not only reconciled to God, they're reconciled to each other. Secularists claim that religion causes war. But the message of Christianity actually results in ceasing them. It not only does the opposite of what they claim, but the reality is, is that atheistic regimes have been the most bloodthirsty and the most violent in the history of the world. Just think Pol Pot, the killing fields, or what happened under Lenin or Stalin. All of which leads us on to Paul's second point, and that is, not only has the mystery of Christ been revealed, it's also now being proclaimed. And this leads us on to consider what Paul says in verses 8 to 12. Significantly, what Paul says in verse 8 is uncannily similar to what Gideon says in Judges 6. Back there, Gideon had said to the Lord, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. But rather than doubting Christ's commission to him, Paul boasts in verse 8 that he is the least of God's people. Paul boasts about his weakness because as he explains in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, it is through his weakness that Christ's strength is displayed. And so therefore he boasts. In fact, to make sure that, to make sure that Paul remained weak and depended on him, what did God do? He gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. It's difficult to know exactly what it was. Maybe it was a physical ailment or the opposition that he faced from the so-called super apostles that were trying to take him down. But one thing we know for sure is that it was divinely designed to make Paul weak. Three times he pleads with God, take it away. And what does Christ say to him? No. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. This is my plan. That was the Lord's intention. Once again, not to be mean or spiteful, but to fulfill his divine and sovereign purpose of displaying his strength. Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. What a profound way of looking at the Christian life, to boast in weakness. Paul says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Now, we should all be able to repeat the next verse, right? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say amen in your heart with what the truths that the Apostle Paul is saying. Are you so confident in God's providential plan and love for you? 
that you can boast in your weakness. What I'm saying sounds ridiculous. If you don't know Christ or the power of his spirit or the mercy of his forgiveness, it's crazy. And it makes no sense at all. But in a profound way, you know what? We have this treasure, don't we, in jars of clay. And I don't want to go too far with this as an analogy, but how did Gideon win his victory? The jars were broken. I don't know how that won the victory. Normally, if somebody breaks a jar in my place, somebody's getting upset, right? It's not winning victories. Let me exhort you then to humble yourself, come to Christ, and boast in your weakness. Boast. Campbell asked last week when he was preaching from Psalm 46, Are you thirsty? Does your soul cry out for meaning, for purpose, for forgiveness? Do you hunger for that? Do you thirst for that? If so, then hear the words of Jesus in John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. What a great promise. What passages of scripture is the Apostle Paul referring to? There's probably a number of them. If you're taking notes, you might want to look at this one. Isaiah 58 verse 10. Isaiah 58 verse 10. It says this. Here's a word of promise for you this morning, especially if you're feeling weak. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Hear that. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. So can I ask you again, is your soul thirsty? Come to Jesus then and drink. Humble yourself to believe in him and receive the spiritually infinite refreshment of his pure Holy Spirit. You see, there is this really incredible thing happens whenever someone on earth believes, and that is they're reconciled to God and come into his family. All of heaven, actually, stands in awe. In his commentary on Ephesians, John Chapel explains this truth like this. He says, We learn that here, that in union with other sinners made perfect, and as members of one body, we who come from every tribe and nation, people and personality, are on display as a church before the heavenly hosts, as a testimony to the wisdom of God, the Creator. The heavenly hosts are to look at those of us in the church with all of our sin, differing personalities, cultural prejudices and colour differences and say, how did God do that? 
How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures together in one body to praise him? The manifold wisdom of the creator God is really great. Isn't it amazing to think that's what heaven's looking at right now as we come together as a church? They stand in awe at the wisdom and power of God that he might reconcile us not just to himself, but to one another. That doesn't just happen. (laughs) It's incredible. We should stand in awe because all of heaven stands in awe. The Apostle Paul, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, obviously puts it even better. Have a look at verse 10 and 11 again. His intent was that now, through the church, again, you're thinking, don't you? He's going to say, but now, through Christ. Christ is the head of the church, but he's saying his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see? Isn't it mind-blowing to consider that what happens here on earth is actually having a cosmic effect in heaven? Our world around us in Hobart might, might look, well, what's happening in the Greek club this morning? A lot of cars out the front. Yeah, not much. All of heaven stands and looks down at our gathering and goes, wow. Praise God that he would do that. Look at those people. So lazy, so lethargic, so difficult, so disagreeable. And they're all together worshipping his son. I could go further. I was being kind. But there's more. Because in verse 12, Paul talks about how we can approach God now with freedom and with confidence. If I want you just to turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 with me and I'll explain what this means. I know we believe this, But I want you this morning, brothers and sisters, to own this. I want your heart to sing with hope and confidence as we read this. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm just going to read from verse 14 through to verse 16. We read in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's that word again. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Here's the word. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy. And find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what a wonderful promise of comfort that is. Through Christ, you and I have access to the very throne room of God. I have a couple of numbers on my phone which I really prize. 
they're people that I really respect and uh, they've given me their personal contact numbers. I try to only text them occasionally because I know it's such a privilege and I shouldn't abuse the privilege. How much greater is our privilege that we can come to our Heavenly Father? The creator and sustainer of all creation. Now you might be thinking, oh, but me, no, 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 no. You can't be like that. Oh, maybe who no, 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 no. You have to give yourself a good slap at that point. Because you have a high priest who has gone into the heavens before you, who has made that access perfect. If you do not come to God through Christ with confidence, you're not honoring Christ. You're not really giving him glory for what he has done. Yes, you're weak. Weaker than you could ever imagine. You don't even know it by half. Christ is infinitely stronger than you will ever imagine. And he is your saviour. He has promised to listen to you whenever you come. And why? Not just because he's loving and generous and kind. He's all of those things. Jesus is our great high priest. The one who constantly lives to intercede for us with a perfect, sinless, indestructible life. That's why we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, 24-7. Because we have an advocate who is constantly interceding on our behalf. So if you're feeling a little bit trepidatious, cautious, don't. Give glory to Christ and come confidently because of what he's done. Now, it doesn't look like that on earth, does it? Let me be frank. Prayer looks like the most foolish, ineffectual, and dare I say it, weak thing you could ever do. And it does look that way. But by faith, we know that we come before the God of heaven who hears, who changes the world. Yes? Of whom nothing is too difficult or hard. The God who is so sovereign, he sometimes says, no. Everything I've just been talking about, though, is something, (laughs) can you believe this? As an aside to what Paul originally wanted to say. And his point is simply this. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged when servants of the gospel suffer or are persecuted. Don't be discouraged. If they persecuted me, they'll they'll persecute you, Jesus says. If they hated me, they'll hate you. And it's not like, oop, something slipped out of God's hands. That is God's plan. Because God's plan is that his strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Don't be discouraged when our influence in society seems to only decrease and wane. Don't be discouraged when the armies of the Lord start to decrease and get fewer and fewer in number. God doesn't need numbers. He can defeat the entire Midianite army with 300. 
Don't be discouraged by any of these things because the Lord delights in using the weak things of the world. He delights doing that so that he can shame the strong so that no one will boast that it was by their own strength that they were saved. No, being weak is exactly where the Lord God Almighty wants us to be. And this is why Paul can say, all of these things happen for their glory. Because that's how Christ intended it to be. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. We thank you that you've spoken to us through it. Lord, we don't take this lightly. Because for many of us, Lord, the trials that we are going through are intense. We don't make light, Lord, when we talk about our weaknesses, but we can boast because we know we have an infinitely stronger Saviour. Lord, we pray that we would all know your strength this week and in the weeks and months ahead. Strengthen our faith. Help us to, like Paul, delight in our weaknesses and boast in them so that we might know more and more of your strength. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.